pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, what I'm going to talk about today are food fights or this notion of, um, yeah, food fights and how can we engage in food fights in um, productive ways that influence policy in ways that are hopefully useful <laughs> to us and ourselves. What am I talking about when I talk about food fights? Um, everything from uh, the fights around sugar consumption and soda consumption. This is um, from the New York City campaigns. Concerns about antibiotic resistance in farm animals or farmed animals. This I wasn't even aware of until I was doing the um, searches for, to, uh, for my talk today. This is um, a partnership between McDonald's and schools where the schools, I'm sorry, yeah, schools have teachers work at McDonald's um, on a teacher's night, and some of the proceeds from the meals at McDonald's are um, given back to the school. Really interesting um, connection, right? But obviously, some people would have really positive ideas about that, and other people would have really negative ideas about that. Uh, Wendy, who is here in the audience, and Christina, who's here in the audience, both are at UNC, were at, or are at UNC Asheville, and um, we have a center for health and wellness, and uh, a new Chick-fil-A opened up on our, um, in our neighborhood, and the folks, before, right before opening day, they came through with bags of Chick-fil-A and handing them out to the health teachers. <laughs> and it was just like, <laughs> I was like, Oh wow! <laughs> so this, and then and then our um, uh, development office is sending literally sending coupons for Chick Fil A to all of the workers on the university campus. And it's like, whoa! Wait a minute! And how does this fit? And do we need to rethink that? And I think it's a good uh, big question: How do we work effectively with um, food corporations for supporting? schools and other um, what you might think of as social justice issues in ways that don't compromise health, for example. <laughs> um, good. All right. And then, of course, nutrition policy. Um, I think everyone in this room most likely knows what nutrition policy is, but what I'm talking about here are laws and policy guidelines about food and nutrition. And some of our um, big ones in the U.S. are the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, um, our menu planning guides, MyPlate, um, Food Guide Pyramid, and MyPyramid, and all of those. And then, of course, the Institute of Medicine Guidelines for Nutrient Intake, our laws around food labeling, a lot of contention in, in that area, a lot of food fights around um, labels right now, food um, or nutrition programs where uh, food is made more access or as more accessible to individuals with low incomes, and then, of course, health claims and advertising laws for food and supplements. So kind of big picture, um, nutrition policy, and there's plenty more, but those are kind of the big ones. Um, so we've got stakeholders, kind of, I, I'm, just to sort of make sense out of this for myself, we've got uh, kind of three categories of stakeholders, although there's a whole lot more. There's people who eat, there's um, people who care about what people eat, <laughs> and then there's people who sell us food. And um, these folks tend to be in 
um, food fights about nutrition policy. A, um, an example of why that might be the case. Why, why would we be, um, why would agribusiness be up against health professionals relative to one of these policy issues, one of these policy areas? Yeah, yeah, so they have different interests, right? A profit interest versus potentially uh, some kind of public health outcome interest. It's good, good. Other thoughts? Of course, that's a big one. So um, some of the big concerns for agribusiness and food industry, they um, generally are, I mean, because of the way business is constructed and done in the United States, any kind of message to eat less is going to be problematic for the industry because in order for a business to continue, it needs to keep gaining market share, to, con con to grow or continue, it needs to keep gaining market share. So there's been a lot of pressure to eat more in our food system from the um, from industry. So we, we are trying to expand markets rather than narrow them, and largely because that adds value for the stockholder, right? It makes sense, um, but what are some of the impacts of this, this notion of, um, needing, of, of tr needing to get us to eat more? You didn't think you were going to have to work. <laughs> well, what does it look like in the food in um, in our food supply? This pressure to to get us to at least buy more. Tons of choice, right? Lots of different flavors, value added sizes, right? This kind of stuff. Um, Extraordinary amounts of money spent on marketing of food. I, we just, uh, in my health communication class, we just had a, um, my co-teacher showed an ad from the Super Bowl that had, um, that was a Coca-Cola ad um, where the, uh, somebody knocks over a Coke into a major computer and, and um, it makes everybody's messages from their computers more positive, happier, um, and all, and it's sort of like, they are trying to sell us, um, sell all consumers, not just us, um, food based on these properties that it may or may not have, right? Um, I think the tagline is, make it happy for that particular, um, Well, and even my uh, my health communications class were like, we love that ad. Like that ad <laughs> was great. I don't just like it's not going to make me drink more Coke, but I love that ad. You know, this idea that so there's a fantasy there, right? The I mean, when I first saw it, you see that uh, Coke falling over and the um, liquid is going into the machine. You think I thought. Oh my gosh, the machine is ruined. Like, <laughs> like, where are they going with this ad? Because it's, it's, you know, that's one of the biggest fears is you get something on your keyboard, right? So, so it's totally fantastical, and I think we like that. But it's where they're selling um, to get us to buy for reasons other than 
food, health, nutrients, etc. Um, how about health professionals? So got all sorts of con concerns that are maybe contrary to this sell more or buy more, eat more messaging that we're getting from food industry. Certainly we're worried about um, growing growth of our nation. We're worried about um, food access and food security. We're worried about um, the high rates of chronic disease. We're concerned about messages that kids are getting. Um, I threw this one in here. Families eating garbage rather than whole food. I was um, had an opportunity years ago to be on a kind of a, a news talk show kind of a thing, and um, one of the experts on that talk show was saying, the, the question was, well, what's wrong with how kids are eating? And she said, well, families are eating garbage, um, which I thought is like, it, like uh, what does that mean? Uh, kind of condenses it all down into one little thing. But we're worried about a lot of things. We're worried about um, the nutrition guidelines. Are they strong enough? Are they clear enough? I mean, when I think about contradictory, the... IOM recommendations for macronutrients are very different, than, for example, than um, data suggests relative to fat and um, percentage of calories from fat and percentage of calories from um, protein relative even to um, the RDAs or to what we know relative to chronic disease prevention. And then funding, of course, as well. And how about consumers? What are some of the concerns of consumers? in these food fights. So we've got the people who are selling food. We've got the people who are worried about health. What are the consumers thinking about? What are they worrying about? That's all of us too, but. Cost. Cost, how much does it cost? What else? What Convenience. Like the what What's in here? Yeah, yeah, because of allergies, because of worries about GMOs, because so what's in the food? What else? Cost, convenience, what's choice? Yeah, continuing to have lots of choice, you know, um, absolutely. Other things? Taste. Taste, yeah, yeah. Is that what you were going to say? Price? Price, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes health, or if you, particularly if you've got, you know, someone in your family with a food allergy or something, or someone in your family with, um, you know, a, a food-related chronic condition, then you might think about the sort of health value of that food a little bit more. Which I would say that's unfortunate because that's sort of medicalizing. Yeah. Thinking about health. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Are consumers worried about other things that you can think of that might factor in here? Maybe like how long something will last, like fresh produce versus something that's... Ah, good, good. So kind of shelf life or not wanting to waste because things might go bad. Like celery really comes in too big of a thing for a single person to get through in time. Yeah, yeah. So some factors about... so. When would I eat this? How will I? Good, good. Environmental impact? Yeah, yeah, I think that's another piece, too. At least a um, lot of conversation about the environmental impact of our food supply among at least young people in Asheville. <laughs> um, I think it's brand names, too. Yeah. Like, oh, I've heard that, or they say they're organic, or... Right, right. So, um... 
so many things, right? If you grew up on a certain food, you might be more likely to go to that specific product. Or um, Asheville is a Pepsi town because a Pepsi is from uh, nearby there. So um, what other kinds of associations do you have with those foods? Am I getting you? Yeah. So we've got, we've got just kind of set the stage a little bit. So how can we go about influencing nutrition policy? And so uh, what I'm going to talk about is, uh, for the rest of the time is some examples and some thoughts on that. So what we can do is take a look at how it's being done and see if we can learn something from that. Um, certainly food producers and marketers are doing it through lobbying. They're trying to influence um, nutrition policy through lobbying, through um, making friends, forming alliances, um, through checkoff programs. You all know what checkoff programs are. These are, um, it's marketing for a, a particular, typically particular agricultural product that is done um, kind of between the producers or with the producers and the government. So we have checkoff programs for dairy. We have checkoff pro- programs for pork. And what happens is the producers put a little bit of money um, into this pot, this checkoff program pot, and then that money is used to market pork. Not market that company's pork, but pork generally, or market dairy generally. So um, this is, I always think of these as sort of quasi-corporate, quasi-governmental. It's government-run, but it's funded through the producers themselves, which is kind of an interesting thing. Um, lobbying you are probably aware of is any legal attempt by individuals or groups to influence government policy or action, and um, it explicitly excludes bribery. So the typical general elements are uh, the general elements of lobbying are promoting views of special interest groups, attempting to influence government laws, rules, or policy of interest, and communicating with government officials about those things. How do they do that? Or in translation, what does that look like? It looks like um, providing well-researched technical advice to policymakers, um, typically in the form of policy briefs in some version or another. Also establishing personal contacts. So um, lobbyists are often trying to get a decision maker on their side on a particular issue. Um, They often are involved in arranging campaign contributions to the extent that it's allowed. They sometimes stage media events and demonstrations to try to get their point across more broadly, maybe not just the lawmakers that they're working with specifically, but um, other ones who might have be influential on their issue. Um, Some of them also harass critics. I'm going to show you an example of that in just a second. And they also sometimes encourage lawsuits. So there's lots of different ways that um, lobbying ends up influencing specifically policymakers around um, how they vote on a particular issue or law. This is a harassing critics example. Um, (laughs) I don't know if you can read this. Are you too stupid to make good personal decisions about food and beverages? The New York Department of Scratch Out Health, put in hype, has used your tax dollars to launch an advertising campaign to demonize soda. Food cops and politicians are attacking food and soda choices they don't like. Have they gone too far? So here is a 
it's a uh, organization that is pre- pushing against um, <laughs> what they call the nanny state or this. Um, so that's a an an example. And what are they pushing back against here? I think this is actually kind of an interesting example. What are they? So this is really targeted both to lawmakers but also to consumers. What's, what are they pushing back against? It's almost in, in their name, right? It's your right to eat as badly as you want to, right? <laughs> or eat as unhealthfully as you want to. And by suggesting um, that... Um, by suggesting that soda might be part of the problem with related to our um, expanding girth and those kinds of things, they're reducing, the, the notion is they're reducing our choices as consumers, right? Is this in response to the New York City banning certain sizes of soda? Um, I think it was, it was the early soda ads where um, they were, like, had a picture of them um, drinking a soda and fat was coming out of the soda can. And then, like that one I showed at the beginning, there's 16 packs of sugar in this. Yeah. So, so it was more, they were, this was against a Christine and Ab campaign? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it seems to me, though, it's important to differentiate that they're using freedom rather yeah. freedom as a device they don't care about. Right. What they care about is that if they allow this to happen, it sort of slides down the slippery slope a little bit towards where government now has a role, or someone else besides the market has a role in determining things like the size of, of uh, Exactly. So it's not really consumer freedom that they're interested in. It's food corporate corporations' freedom, right, to continue to market any way that we want to. Absolutely. What's that? Yes. Yes. Or corporations, yes, under the law. Um, other ways that food, the food industry in, um, influences policy through things like, um, and this is Marian Nessel's language, co-opting nutrition professionals by doing things like funding research to support the health benefits of their products, sponsoring education, um, sponsoring conferences. Uh, and all of you, or I imagine many of you, have been to some kind of health promotion or um, nutrition conference, if you have, you've seen the sponsorships, right? The sponsorships by corporate interests um, of the conference. And in some ways, those are really important to be able to hold the conferences. Conferences are expensive, right? So it's a, um, but does it influence the health promoters, the fact that there's a lot of, um, corporate sponsorship. And I think probably the uh, most difficult or stickiest point is the funding research to support the health benefits of the product. So finding, and I'll show you, I think I have an example of that coming up. And then also using advertising to garner support of the consumer for a specific product so that then they will vote appropriately relative to lawmakers who are... So we're working at all levels. We're not just working with the lawmakers themselves, but with anybody who could influence lawmakers. I don't think I have time for that. Um, 
Um, so there are also, I think I'll try to sh- see if this will work, show you this, this um, press release. So this is the International Dairy Foods Association. Um, it's a, a press release that's used, uh, a recent press release for the Get Real initiative. Hopefully it'll come, come up. Maybe it won't. Cannot download. Well, basically, I'll just tell you what it says. With the Get Real initiative, they're trying to change the conversation about dairy foods. Um, They're using social media um, to send out... um, basically positive messages about da- dairy foods or cow's milk, um, cow's milk products in order to um, kind of push back against the anti-milk messaging that has, it has become more popular um, generally. And, and they talk about it. It's like, okay, now let's get real. Let's get down to the, to the basics, to the brass tacks. Oops. So... Again, and this is an example, I have to um, say in advance, I've done a lot of work on dairy in my life, and so um, this is an, an older example, but I think it's just, it's such a beautiful, clear example of this notion of pressing or um, funding research to get what you want um, to use to support a campaign uh, created, get that, get that information. So. Um, back, this is a bunch of years ago, but this is this notion of selling the science or how can we, we've, we've got an idea, we'd like to go out and sell milk or sell Cheerios or whatever on the basis of its ability to do X. How do we get that information? So this is um, a language directly from a presentation from the um, International Dairy Association. Um, basically saying the National Dairy Council has been supporting a body of emerging science that suggests dairy can be part of the solution to the obesity crisis. So they're like, okay, what is worrying health promoters? What is worrying the nation? What's in the news all the time? Obesity or obesity prevention. How can we position milk to be a solution to that? Um, And again, their language, the goal, our goal is to introduce dairy's weight loss benefit by selling the science. Like, literally using those words. Um, we're going to sell the science. Um, but first, they have to buy the science. Um, and it wasn't Dr. Phil, but these are, <laughs> these are, the, <laughs> these are the ads. Um, it was part of the Milk Mustache campaign with the um, Milk Your Diet, Lose Weight, uh, sort of what um, came out of this. So one researcher, um, all of whose studies were um, funded through dairy interests, shown, showed a, has shown um, a beneficial weight loss effect in three small trials with obese individuals on calorically restricted diets. And with those three studies, they launched a huge marketing campaign that milk or consuming 24 ounces in 24 hours of dairy products will help you lose weight. And um, before I go on, let's just... Think about that for a second. 24 ounces in 24 hours of 
cow's milk or other dairy foods. I mean, if you, if you just think about it from the perspective of adding anything, it's probably not going to help you lose weight, right? Because if you're adding anything, you're going to add calories. Um, they don't say in the ads, although these were done on, these studies were done with people who are outside of their healthy weight with caloric restriction. So, um, and then the other thing you think about is like, why would a food that's designed, that has a nutritional package designed for growth help you get smaller? Like, does there, does that make any sense at all? I mean, now we're, now it's being marketed to, um, as an after exercise beverage that helps you pack, you know, pack your uh, glycogen back into your muscles and make your muscles stronger, right? That makes more sense than a nutritional package designed for growth to make you thinner, right? It just doesn't make sense. It's full of, it's, it's energy dense, it's nutrient dense, it just doesn't make any sense. So um, one of the things um, that people in academia or in um, nonprofit organizations can do is take a look at the science and see if, if the science actually says that. And when you do that, um, there, it's actually quite clear that the evidence doesn't support claims that dairy products or calcium facilitate weight loss. No surprise, right, if you think about it from a um, does-it-make-sense point of view. And even when paired with caloric restriction, even if you look at the studies that were done on people outside of their healthy weight range with um, caloric restriction of 500 uh, calories a day, it's still not convincing. Only um, three of the trials, those three, that were being used to support this advertising campaign, um, showed any effect at all. So... Um, one thing organizations can do, and the organization that I uh, used to work with uh, did to fight back against this, thought, hmm, this seems like this, this advertising. So we published a review article with that data. And then with that in the literature, we um, wrote a petition to the Federal Trade Commission against these ads on the basis that they were um, false and misleading because if the body of data doesn't support it, they don't even, the, the ads didn't even say you have to, even if you believe those three studies, the ads didn't say if you're on a calorie-restricted diet and you're outside your healthy weight range, right? They just said drink more and you'll get thinner. So we submitted that um, petition to the Federal Trade Commission in 2005 and two years later, this is like policy work can just about kill you sometimes. Um, two years later, the Federal Trade Commission responded. And what they did, what they said was, they got together, said, well, we've had conversations with the USDA and the Dairy Board and the Fluid Milk Board, and what we've decided is we're going to discontinue all advertising and other marketing activities involving weight loss until there's further research. But they didn't um, require any, they didn't require the industry to say, oh, those were wrong. Um, they just said, you can't say dairy causes weight loss anymore. So how did the ads change? You have to look really, really closely. Um, so milk your diet, lose weight, 24 ounces in 24 hours. So this is before the FTC petition. And this one, milk your diet, still has the hourglass uh, milk. I mean, the, the average consumer is not going to 
is still the same campaign, right? You're just not, you're not going to see that. You're not going to notice that. But still, and, and, and actually, if you read the language, they, say, they do say it can support maintaining a healthy weight, but they don't say it'll cause weight loss. So it's a, really just a very minor victory, but it's the kind of thing that if we don't keep the pressure on with these particularly false and misleading claims, um, it's, it, they'll just compound or expand. So at least um, keeping some pressure on can be helpful. Thoughts or questions on that one? I know it's an old example, but it's kind of a good one. So some challenges um, for health professionals and and conscious consumers, consumers who care, are um, that the food industry has huge financial power. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, a nonprofit organization that's trying to get a you know, public service announcement message out or do a social marketing campaign that has a budget a hundredth the size of the company that they're trying to, you know, that's, that they're in a food fight with, right? Um, they, the um, food industry has a very multi-factor, multifactorial approach and the strategies are working, consumers are buying. This is one of my, I don't even know where this was, but I just love this um, particular <laughs> board. All you need is cheese. All you need. That's it. And look, you'll have love. <laughs> Just grate a little bit. It looks like Velveeta to me. Grate a little Velveeta and you're done. You're set. You're set for life. So, um, but we're buying. Consumers in general are buying. We're buying the foods. So what are some opportunities for organizations then to influence food and nutrition policy? I mentioned one that was kind of an extreme one with with a good outcome but not a very dramatic outcome. What are some other opportunities? Well, we can, um, organizations or health professional individuals can educate, can work with, can lobby um, policymakers ourselves, uh, try to convince consumers so they pressure their policymakers. We can work with scientists or as scientists, create the data that's needed to do evidence, to have the evidence-based reviews review the results that we've come up with, right? And we can work with other healthcare professionals to, to try to, or sort of network or work with other healthcare professionals to try to move policy forward. So let's say we want to, address policymakers. Well, there's lots of, actually, quite a few opportunities in nutrition policy to address policymakers. Um, a lot of the, the big federal legislation has opportunities for comments, oral comments and um, written comments when requested. In order to do this, though, you've got to stay on top of policy change that's happening. You have to read the Federal Register. Woohoo! Or <laughs> be signed up to um, get action alerts from a, an organization that reads the Federal Register and says, hey, first round of oral comments for the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee is now. Um, there's oral comments for, or oral or written comments for all kinds of food-related legislation that often goes unnoticed unless somebody's keeping up with it. We can write 
letters to government leaders. We can do targeted media campaigns. We can use lawsuits to bring attention to a policy issue that we see as problematic. This, this one, um, you know, there's a lot of contention about whether this is a good idea or not, but it is one way to get attention to a particular food fight that you're interested in that's less costly than a massive social marketing campaign, for example. Um, we can collaborate with or join policy-focused professional organizations. We can um, motivate constituents to contact lawmakers. And let's see. Okay. I think I can give you some examples of, of those in this next um, in this next one. So, as uh, Bree mentioned, I had the opportunity to work with Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine after I was. Um, <laughs> Uh, no longer working there on, on the 2010 dietary guidelines. And some of the things that we did, and I think this is a pretty interesting process. They, so the focus of PCRM is promoting um, entirely plant-based diets, whole foods, plant-based diets. So just uh, hold that in your head. Um, so we had the opportunity to, I actually personally had the opportunity to sit on a panel at an international con conference on the importance of making um, the dietary guidelines more food and dietary pattern inclusive as well as more inclusive uh, or focused on food and dietary patterns and more inclusive of vegetarian diets. And then those panelists wrote a paper together and got it published about here's what needs to be done to make the dietary guidelines better. So we got it in the literature um, enough years before the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. And one of the things that happened um, at that meeting that I thought was particularly helpful is um, Connie Weaver was one of the people on the panel, and she is a former um, person who sat, who's, who's been on the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. And she said to the panelists and to the audience, Actually, if you want them to ask the question about vegetarian diets or you want them to do an evidence-based review, you've got to get them to ask the right questions. This is so important. Are they asking the questions in their evidence-based reviews? If you want to know whether, um, if you want the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee to make a statement about GMO um, labeling, they have to ask a question in their evidence-based review or it's not going to come up. And I hadn't thought of that. Um, before that time, I hadn't thought of that. Relative to the dietary guideline, I can speak to that best in this particular realm. So um, one of the things that they do is they accept uh, written comments. Um, now, easily on the internet, you just click and type in whatever you want. And what we did, um, folks who were at that conference, got in touch with everyone they could think of and said, write in, say, please ask a question about vegetarian diets. And what they do is they go through those comments before they start, and they add up the number of times something is said. So if you want to focus on... Most savvy. The most media savvy, their opinion will Well, or at least it'll get them to ask that question, yeah. right? So it's using the opportunities in the system 
to good effect. So you, you have to get into the system well enough to, you know, far enough to understand how to make, how to create a little bit of shift. So if they do an evidence-based review on your question, say it was, um, you know, something about how parents are um, providing snacks to their kids, right? The data has to be there for the answer that you want, right? So, in <laughs> which is an interesting thing. So that's you have to keep publishing on the evidence that you want them to use to make these right decisions. You, what you think is your, is the right decision, or what your group of um, individuals think is the right decision. The other thing I would say in we were looking, we're, not, we're trying to get them to recommend to everyone a vegetarian diet, but just, I mean, the 2005 guidelines, I don't know if you remember them, they, they basically didn't mention vegetarian diets. There was a vegetarian food plan, but there was no mention in the 2005 guidelines. So we were really trying to get vegetarian diets back in. They had been in in 2000 and they had been in in 1995, but they were out. In so one of the things was like, okay, this is at least a good way of um, prom- eating and promoting healthy, um, promoting healthy lifestyles. So if you leave room for other, <laughs> other people's things too, and it's sort of that notion of should we change all the food in schools or should we offer some healthy choices in schools, right? Well, I would love to see us change all the food in schools, but until we can get there, let's at least have a healthy choice. I don't know if that's addressing your question or not. Um, and then the coalition building, sort of like working with other organizations that might have a similar idea and seeing if they can mobilize maybe for a different reason on a similar topic. So you want to continue to publish clinical research on the characteristic or the, um, yeah, thing of interest. In this case, it was uh, health effects of vegetarian diets. You, we have the opportunity, individuals and organizations and departments and any unit can nominate experts to the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. That's another great strategy. If you can get someone on there with um, a certain framework in mind, and we're seeing some pretty interesting things happening with the 2015 guidelines with, I think, now two people on the Dietary Guidelines who have a sustainability and a um, food security focus. Before 2010, those were not part of the conversation at all. Um, It was just food and it was just nutrition besides exercise. You know, it was just not whether or not people could get to the food or whether or not that food had any impact on the environment. So anyways, I don't mean to just be talking to you. Um, (laughs) So you can mobilize experts and others to um, ask for an evidence-based review. The Dietary Guidelines Committee is a little bit different than other policies. So in other cases, you might still be mobilizing people to all write in with a similar idea with their own reasons for um, labeling something differently or, you know, you can still do that. Um, you don't always have the opportunity to nominate experts. So, and remarkably, in 2010, they had question, they did evidence-based reviews on questions related to um, the health, health benefits or, uh, of plant-based diets. It was, I couldn't believe it <laughs> because it had, had worked on the dietary guidelines for uh, quite a few years before that without much effect. So that was exciting. And the 2010 Dietary Guidelines use plant-based. They say plant-based. 
I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> be, you know, I'd be more excited if it was built from plant foods, but at least we're emphasizing plant foods, right? And then, um, and then they started to talk more about food and less about nutrients relative to what to avoid. And that was the other main focus of that panel. And I'm not saying that our panel did that, but it was part of the whole mix of fat pressures. Um, they also named foods that were rich in solid fats and named foods that were rich in sugars, rich in added sugars. It's like, oh, cool. You know, it's like choose foods low in saturated fat. What does that mean? You know, this means these are the foods that are problems, right? <laughs> I can understand that as a consumer. Um, the other thing is... Um, for the first time in 2010, they talked about two things that I thought were really important. Improving the availability of affordable, affordable. Um, availability, affordable, oh my gosh, things that consumers care about, right? Fresh produce through greater access to grocery stores, produce trucks, and farmers markets. So access, we're talking about access. And increase environmentally sustainable production of fruits, vegetables, and fiber-rich whole grains. Anybody guess why I'm laughing at that? <laughs> they don't mention anything about the environmental sustainability of foods other than these. So the, <laughs> the, um, it's like, yeah, we should make sure they get our, can you know, have access to sustainably grown bananas. Um, but of just, they just skirted the whole environmental sustainability of the animal food production systems, right? So um, I went, I've only been to one of the meetings this time on the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, but I was super impressed with what I saw. There were, there, they were talking about environmental sustainability of the food supply in a much broader way. And the Subcommittee on Food Sustainability and Safety, this is right off the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee's um, website. They're about to put out their recommendations, but they've sort of named their recommendations on slides. And one of them is this, um, that to promote environmental sustainability of the food system, we should be encouraging consumers to eat more plant foods and fewer foods from animal sources. Holy moly. It's a massive paradigm shift to shift the whole food system, especially to frame it around sustainability and to think about it by using land smarter instead of using more land or, or, or even that, like that, that whole notion of growth. So other things, just I'll go ahead and um, finish up and then um, we can have more conversation. So organizations or health professionals can inform consumers of a need for change through media coverage, through education materials and programs, through writing books. We can do the same sort of things that... Um, is being done by uh, corporate interests. Uh, CSPI, the Center for Science and Public Interest, is really good at this. They um, do reports, or they collect data, they do reports, they get um, issues, uh, policy-related issues, into the media. Um, these are just some headlines. This is um, one of the, the top page of a 2013 report, which I... Um, no, has, they've just repeated the data collection to see if it's gotten any better, uh, a little bit. <laughs> but basically they were looking at how many, or, um, how many kids' meals meet 
really very basic nutrition um, guidelines uh, set by the CF set by the CSPI, but drawn from um, public policy documents. And basically, this report said 97% of kids' meals flunk nutrition. They're not meeting those basic guidelines. Um, but reports like this have spurred change, some change. Wendy has removed sodas from their kids' meals. That's fairly recent. Um, and other folks like the Center for Disease Control is getting into the mix and the conversation about what's happening with kids' meals. It's kind of like a marker about what's happening for the rest of us, right, about what's happening with kids' meals. But people can get behind this notion of what are we feeding kids and what are we recommending to children. Um, we can influence nutrition policy by the research that we do, by asking um, good questions, by... Um, presenting and publishing our work by responding to published research and um, by collaborating with other researchers to try to move our understanding of a particular nutrition issue forward, right? And then educators, I think, I imagine some of you, I know some of you are educators and I imagine some of you might be educators, but I really think that we've got to not just talk about nutrition, but also um, put it in the frame of, of nutrition policy. If mobilizing individuals is important, they need to know about policy and how to influence it, um, even just specifically nutrition policy, but it could be health policy across the board. So we need to address these kinds of issues in our um, curriculum. We need to teach policy influencing skills, how to write a policy brief, how to write a policy letter, how to do um, an effective or learn the skills or practice the skills to do an effective social marketing campaign. These kinds of things will help us get better at this over time if um, the people coming through uh, schools now are learning those skill sets. And I, I think we need to be at the forefront of jumpstarting the conversations about, I mean, just like the conversation you were just bringing up. It's like, we've got to, we need a paradigm shift. We've got to talk about that over dinner with our friends, you know, with our students, and so forth. So, um, some questions to consider. I think as we're kind of moving forward and thinking about food and nutrition policy, whatever your issue is, whatever your policy, the policies you care about are. So, I think it might be worth thinking about um, a couple of lenses that haven't traditionally been in uh, sort of the conversation relative to U.S. nutrition policy. One of those is this notion of food as a human right, which um, I'm sure you're uh, oh, largely aware of this, but the idea is it's not just access to food or not even just access to healthy food, but access to so, so culturally relevant access to um, food, land, resources that can be achieved with dignity and that is health-promoting. So our uh, federal nutrition programs, I think, are falling way, way short. We're looking at, we're doing more stopgap measures and less promoting of food as a human right. Or think, we're not thinking about food as a human right as we're, um, particularly relative to food security, but I think even relative to nutrition guidelines as well. What would it, how would it be different if we looked at it a different way? Um, there's some great examples 
in other places in the world, but I don't think we, we've gotten there yet in terms of how we do particularly um, federally funded nutrition programming. Um, I don't think we have a human right frame on that yet. And then another piece would be to broaden our policy focus to include broader implications for the food system. Historically, the dietary guidelines, as I sort of pointed out, and certainly the DRIs, there's nothing about sustainability of the food system in the DRIs. Um, Or really any of the other, you guys think Meals on Wheels or School Lunch, there's no sustainability focus in those um, in, in that in that policy making, and I think we might want to try to get our arms around thinking about food, the whole food system as we're thinking about trying to make policy change. And then finally, how can individuals do this stuff? Well, we can use our consumer power. We can make choices that are that fit with our belief systems around um, the food system. We can. Right, books make movies. How many, I mean, there's been some fabulous <laughs> books and movies that have just been a concerned consumer um, writing about food, poli- food policy issues. We can lobby um, for change in ways that are ac- accessible to, to um, just being a person who lives in the United States. We can write letters to the editor. We can submit comments on policy. We can talk to each other about this stuff or to whatever, whatever the issues that are important to you. We can read. We can take action. And we can work with local um, companies and organizations to make change. One of my favorite examples of this was um, I was visiting with a school food service director in Berkeley, California. And in Berkeley, they were sort of on the early forefront of trying to move school lunch into a more healthful range. And one of the things that the... Um, that I got to talk to the school f- food service director about was she said, well, you know, one of my problems is food is sourcing. Is sourcing, let's say, I think it was, she wanted something like whole grain hot dog buns or something like that or hamburger buns. And she's like, nobody is, and there's companies that are making whole grain hamburger buns but at that time, but they come in packages of eight and she has a massive school district. So she had to work with a company to get them to repackage for this food service system. So there's ways that, even though that's not actually a policy change, it was a problem. I mean, there was a policy change that she was trying to respond to and had to work with the local um, companies in order to have that kind of response. I'm just about done. And then... um, so the way, if you don't want to keep up with federal register notices, um, find the organization that has action alerts on your issues or issues of interest and sign up. Almost all of them have um, some kind of email action alert thing. And then um, I think these are just a couple of thoughts that I try to uh, sort of carry up, carry around with me. I think um, that we really need to think Think about ways that, think about helping everyone frame policy around benefiting human health as opposed to protecting rights of corporations, right? And um, it's not going to get done unless we do it. So, (laughs) So that's it.